Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 1 this morning. Luke chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 68 through 79. We are in our second week of Advent celebrating. What Advent means is the coming of Christ. If you need a copy of God's Word, Larry has a handful back there. Just put your hand in the air. He'd love to bring you one. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, take that. That's our gift to you. Um, if you need a new copy of God's Word, take that. That's our gift to you. Um, we'd love to, for you to take that with you. Um, this morning. So we're in our second week of Advent, and we're, we're talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Advent means coming, so we're celebrating uh, the coming of Christ. And that's not really different from anything that we do for the rest of the year. The rest of the year, we, we celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ. And we don't end there, though. But we can continue to celebrate not only his coming, but his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. And we're celebrating, when we get together as a body like this on a Sunday morning, we are celebrating that Christ is reigning at the Father's right hand. And everything that we do falls under his reign. Everything that happens in our lives is, is underneath the reign of our King. And then we celebrate also that he is coming back. He's coming back to restore us to, what, to our original state, the way that everything was intended to be. And so this morning, as we look at our text, as we consider uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 68 through 79, Zechariah's prophecy, and as we consider this this morning, this is something that sometimes often gets overlooked at Christmas. We not, may not see it as impactful, but it is very impactful to recognize that the Christ is coming back. He is coming a second time. His first coming heralds the second coming. When God chooses to reveal uh, he's at work in our world like he does at the beginning of Luke's gospel, and we know now that he is because of what he's promised us. So let's, we'll dive into those thoughts a little bit more as we go throughout this text, but let's read our text together this morning. Luke chapter 1, verses 68 through 79. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies, and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear." in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So we see a lot going on here. Zechariah is speaking this prophecy as a result of what's going on in his world. But I think there are three things that we're going to take away from this text this morning and, and sort of the lead up to this text as well. Three things that we can really focus on this morning. Gosh, there's so much here though. I wish we had a day, 24 hours. We could spend 24 hours on this text alone. <laughs> you wouldn't like me very much. 
Three important things then. The first thing, last week we talked about Mary, and we talked about the Magnificat, and how Mary sings this song when she learns that she's going to bear uh, God's son. So what we want to see here is the contrast between Zechariah and between Mary, at least in their historical setting. And then we want to focus just on verse 68. Blessed be the God of the Lord, the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and has redeemed his people. And we're going to call this God's imminence in redemption. And then finally this morning, we'll focus on the preparation of God's people, the second half of what Zechariah prophesies related to his son, John. So first then, let's consider the contrast between Zechariah and Mary. The contrast between Zechariah and Mary. There are a handful of things that we can see in Luke's account, but it'd be helpful for us to back up a little bit. Look, beginning in verse 8 uh, through 25, I'm not going to read this, I'm going to sum this up a little bit for us. This is, where, this is where Zechariah observes and understands and is met by the angel and he tells him that his wife who is barren and advanced in age is going to have a son and this son is going to prepare the way for the coming Christ. So we find out early, between verses 8 and 25, we find out early that Zechariah is a priest and Elizabeth is his wife and both were considered righteous and blameless. Both of them were considered righteous and blameless. So that's important. Um, Luke points that out because Elizabeth was barren and they had no children. So he's telling us that they're righteous and blameless to show that the childlessness was not a punishment, but it was rather part of God's plan. Part of God's plan in redemptive history. God was going to prepare the world for redemption he was the redemption that he's bringing about through an unlikely way through Elizabeth, barren and advanced in years. So Zechariah is we learned Zechariah is in the temple. He's burning incense. He was chosen at random by a method called lots. We say random, but we know in in Proverbs sixteen thirty three that the lot is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. And so this was part of God's plan too. Lots seem random, and yet part of God's plan. And the burning of incense was not a regular thing for a priest to be doing. Um, it was something that was probably a great honor. Um, it's thought at the time when Zechariah was a priest in Jerusalem, it was thought that there were probably about 18,000 priests and Levites. So being drawn at random out of a pool of 18,000 was probably a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So he goes into the temple, and he's burning incense. This would have been a great honor for him. It was not a lot, it would not have taken him a long time to go into the temple and do this, and yet um, it, it, tends, it took a long time because of the encounter that he has inside. So there's this big group of people outside, and they're praying. They're out in the, 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 out in the court, and they're praying. <laughs> and then Zechariah is by himself in the temple, and uh, Gabriel, the angel, appears to him. And he says to him, look at verses 13 through 17 in Luke 1. And the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he, might, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, or, and he, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. 
And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers of the fathers to the children and make the disobedient uh, make the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so Zechariah, he gets this amazing word, this amazing prop, promise from Gabriel, and, and, and he immediately responds in verse 18. He says, how shall I know this? I, I'm old. My wife is old. Essentially, he's saying, prove it to me. Prove it to me that this is going to happen. Prove it to me that this is going to take place. And since Zechariah kind of cops an attitude with Gabriel, Gabriel kind of gives it right back to him. He says, um, he says, Gabriel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And then he gives him the sign that he's looking for. He gives him the sign that he demands. He makes him mute. He can't talk. <laughs> probably, a little bit, probably a little bit harsh, but he gets the sign. Meanwhile, everyone outside is thinking, what's taking so long? This is not a long process. What's going on? And then Zechariah finally comes out, and everyone sees him. They're asking him questions, and he can't talk. And they decide that he saw a vision. Good conclusion. They, saw that he saw, they decided he saw a vision. He signs them, but nobody really gets it. He finishes up his day, and he heads home. And then a few days later, we learn that Elizabeth conceives in verse 24, and then in verse 25, Thus the Lord has, she says this, thus the Lord has done for me in the days, uh, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among my people. So she's going to have a baby. She's going to have a baby. And then she praises God for the reproach that she has among her people being taken away. Again, major importance here, major importance to see Elizabeth and, and what she goes through as a woman who is barren in that culture. She was not barren because she was punished or being punished. Remember, she is righteous and blameless before the Lord. But God's plan was something different than something run of the mill. It was quietly mysterious. And John records in the same vein, John records a conversation between Jesus and his disciples in, in, in John chapter 9. John chapter 9, 1 through 3. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not this man who sinned or his parents, but the, the works of God might be displayed in him. Elizabeth's barrenness was not a result of sin. It was being so that the works of God might be displayed in her. And ancient societies often assumed that physical affliction was a result of personal sin. And while that might be the case, in some instances, Jesus redirects the conversation for his disciples in John 9, away from sin committed and onto God's divine purposes. That man that Jesus and his disciples, that blind man that they ran into, was to demonstrate God's might and his power and that his works might be displayed in him. That's the case with Elizabeth, forerunner of redemption. John the Baptist was going to be born from a seemingly barren womb. 
So in all of this, we see Zechariah's response to the angel, and then what we thought through last week with Mary, we thought through Mary's response to the angel, (laughs) and immediately we see several contrasts. Um, I have three here. I think I'm only going to give you one. Uh, I'll I'll briefly mention the other two at the the front here. Uh, The first contrast we see is simply societal importance. Mary's a woman, 14-year-old girl. Zechariah is a well-thought-of member of his society. He's a priest. He has a title. Mary has none. Zechariah, advanced in years. Mary's a kid. Zechariah has societal clout, and Mary has none. It's God's good pleasure to use both instances to bring about about part of his redemptive plan. And we're going to chase that anymore. Uh, The second one I'll mention to you briefly in contrast that we see between Zechariah and uh, Mary is when they speak or when they sing. You see Zechariah's prophecy in the Magnificat from last week where Mary sings in the presence of Elizabeth. Mary's is very private and Zechariah's is very public. Actually, we'll talk about that a little bit more in a little bit. But Zechariah's proclamation and his prophecy is before a whole host of people while Mary's is done in private. But the contrast that I really want to draw out for us here between Mary and between Zechariah is uh, how they respond to the promise given by Gabriel. How do they respond to the promise? Um, think of Zechariah's faith. And I'm not going to say faithless. Think of Zechariah's faith. He wants a sign to be accompanied with the promise. We know that faith is seeing God's promises and responding to God's promises and believing them. So Zechariah wants a sign. And this isn't uncommon. He knew his Old Testament. This wasn't uncommon. We have several instances in the Old Testament where God promises something to an individual and that individual then asks for a sign to accompany it. Like Abraham does this and and so does Gideon. (laughs) Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the Jews seek sign and the Greeks seek wisdom, but the apostles, they preach Christ crucified, which oftentimes is a stumbling block and foolishness to both the Jews and the Greeks. So Zechariah's response is not, not necessarily one of faithlessness, but faith that needed accompaniment, which is small faith. Zechariah has small faith in the way that he responds. He says, how how shall I know this? Give me a sign. Tell me more. Mary, on the other hand, receives the promise and doesn't demand a sign. She asks how. She doesn't ask for an accompaniment. And Elizabeth commends Mary. And Chapter or in verse uh, 45 of chapter 1, she says, Blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. She received the promise without accompaniment. And this is important for us as a people because we oftentimes think this way. <laughs> we, often, we often hear in our world, if God would just show me what he's doing, if God would just give me a sign that he hasn't left me, But again, think of Gabriel's response in verse 19. Think of Gabriel's response to Zechariah's small faith. He says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Asking God for a sign is essentially an assault against his word. The one of the pillars of our understanding of what this is, or one of the pillars of our understanding of what Scripture is, is that it's sufficient for us. Wayne Grudem, he writes this, he says, 
That scripture contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly and for obeying him perfectly. Scripture is sufficient. The word of God that came through Gabriel to, uh, to Zechariah was sufficient because it was backed by a holy God. So we don't need a sign to go along with this. We don't need a sign to go along with God's word. <laughs> to demand a sign is actually just a form of low-cost, low-commitment Christianity. <laughs> if you don't hear anything this morning, hear this. God has given us his word. And we say this a lot. We talk about this a lot. God has given us his word. And it's not always easy to dig into. In fact, I would say that most of the time it's pretty hard. It might actually be the hardest thing that you ever do. Harder than scaling Mount Everest or running a marathon. There are a lot of barriers to spending consistent time in God's word. But the beauty contained extends beyond anything that you can acquire here on earth. And of course I'm saying that, I'm your pastor. But I am telling you right here and right now that this is the greatest thing that you can dedicate your time to. Not self-help books or Christian radio or listening to sermons or listening to worship songs or, or, or reading Christian mom blogs or whatever. Absolutely no substitute for God's word. But we as people, oftentimes we want to live the Christian life and we want it to come easily. We want it to come and we want it to be simple. It won't, though. It's not going to. It's not going to yield itself up easily. Unfortunately, and for Zechariah, lazy people demand signs. Disciplined people find it in God's word. They mine the truth of who God is, and they find it beautiful. We want to know the, th why, the reason things are the way that they are. We want to know our purpose in this world. We don't, we don't, want, to, we don't want to fumble around and, and not feel like we can change as people. But we fail to go to the source of all things. It's kind of like we want spiritual six-pack abs, but we're sitting on the couch eating Funyuns. <laughs> or we want spiritual diamonds, but we just won't pick up the pickaxe, uh, where we want to be happy, but as the, the author of Proverbs tells us, like a dog that returns to its vomit, we faithlessly return to our empty idols of money, of busyness, of material, of career, of whatever. And I can't change your mind about this book. I can't. I can't change your mind about this book, but the Holy Spirit can. That's my prayer for all of you, that we would, we would come to this and we would know God through it and we would love to know God through his word and that we would not demand signs, but we would, we would with faith approach it and see God's promises given to us and that we would believe. And again, I would be lying to you to tell you that something in this life would require more discipline than daily Bible reading. That sounds asinine, but it's true. This will require more discipline than anything in this life. But I'm also obligated to tell you that you have been given the power and di to discipline yourself, to pick it up, to read it with clarity and consistency. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. So in faith, pick up your Bible this week, read it. If it's been a while, don't be intimidated. Find somebody to read it with you. We're supposed to read this together corporately and individually. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. 
Stop demanding to know about life and godliness, but not going to the source. Zechariah did not need a sign to believe the words of God that were sent to him, but he demanded one anyways, proving small faith. And Mary responds in faith and believes the promises of God as it stood to her, as it comes to her through the messenger Gabriel. And friends, to see the promises of God in his word and believe them like Mary, that is the call this morning. So we see this contrast, right? We see the contrast between Mary and Zechariah and how they respond to God's word. So we have two very different characters then, and we see different responses. What can we take away from, from this contrast? First, that God's plans, first, God's plans are usually not ours. God's plans are usually not ours. God uses Elizabeth's barrenness to prepare the way for the Messiah. God uses a priest's small faith to reveal his work amongst his people. God uses a girl to bring about the Redeemer. And many of us are, might be in this place this morning wondering what is happening in our life. What's God's plan? Why, why, why is what is happening to me happening? God's plans are God's plans. They're usually not your plans. Secondly, Second thing that we can take away from these contrasts is that faith, the importance of faith, that faith is a gift. We clearly see that in Mary. God's promise comes to her and she quickly believes. She quickly believes. This is not blind faith as sometimes our society or Christian culture likes to throw out. This is not blind faith. She is given the gift of faith to recognize and receive the words of God. She didn't know all of the details but she received the gift. And how do we grow in our faith? This is a question sometimes that we ask ourselves. How do we grow in our faith to respond like Mary did? It's not to do things, do more things that seem to require faith. It's to ask God like the disciples did in in Luke chapter 17, verse 5. They said, increase our faith. They ask They ask, increase our faith. So therefore, as God, ask God to increase your faith and meditate on promises. Meditate on promises. Find promises embedded. These are the spiritual diamonds that we're going for. Pick up the pickaxe and start going for these spiritual diamonds. John uh, chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of who were born not who were not who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is the will of God to gift you with saving faith, not the will of the flesh. That's the will of the stuff that you do, not the will of the flesh. The stuff you do does not earn God's favor. Or consider the promise in Romans eight twenty eight. And we know, that, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who, who are called according to his purpose. God doesn't work for your good when you get it right. When you get your act together, it is those who are called according to his purpose, and he does the calling, and we become lovers of God. Those who are the ones who he works all things for good. So Luke draws this contrast then between Zechariah and Mary. 
So let's move on to our text. Then. Let's actually look at the text. In particular, verse 68. And the first thing we can take away is God's imminence in redemption. Verse 68, God's imminence in redemption. What do I mean by imminence? His nearness, his closeness. And remember of the arc of what we call redemptive history. This is exciting. This is phenomenal stuff. All of history can be broken up into four simple stages. All of history can be broken up into four simple stages. When we read our Bibles, we see these clearly. The first stage is just in the first two chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, creation. God creates all things. He creates all things. He creates Adam and Eve. He puts them in the garden. He says, name it all. Uh, Exercise dominion over it. And then the second stage comes the very next chapter, chapter 3. It's called the fall. It's where sin enters the world through the disobedience of Adam. And then Genesis 4 through Malachi 4, we have sin wreaking havoc and God giving glimpses of redemption. But then right before we get to the New Testament, right before all of this is taking place in, in, in the Gospel of Luke and in the Gospels, there's 400 years of nothing, of nothing, of silence. And the people wonder, where is God? Where is God? And then we have the good news of redemption that is going to be prepared for his people through his servant John, through Zechariah's son, through the barren womb of Elizabeth. We have the good news of redemption. This is the third stage. Breakthrough. Then the gospels, the true and lasting redemption which is accomplished in Christ Jesus. And then the final stage, the last couple chapters in the Bible, at the end of the book of Revelation, the last couple chapters is, re- is restoration, which is outlined right there, right at the end. Everyone there is restored. All those who are in Christ are brought back. When Jesus comes the second time, makes it all happen. But this is incredibly, verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people. He hasn't just redeemed them from afar and said, oh, I'm going to take care of this now. He has come down. He has visited his people. He has become imminent. And don't miss the importance of this. Don't read this and move on. It should really, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited his people and redeemed his people. It was God's plan and he was pleased to visit his people or condescend. Come down. That that word kind of has a negative connotation in our culture. Don't be so condescending, Al. Like, here's the appropriate definition. To descend to a less formal or dignified level. This is the God of the universe, created all things, created us for perfect relationship with him, but we violated that, and he is coming down. He is coming down. He's descending to a less formal or dignified level. You think? He is moving from heaven where he is reigning on his throne and coming down and taking on flesh. The very creation, the very thing that he created, he, he clothes himself in. This is the God of the universe accomplishing his plan by coming down and walking with his creatures. This is Emmanuel, God with us. Don't miss that this Christmas season. We think about it, it, it it's kind of there up in our minds. 
We never really meditate or reflect on the fact that God took on flesh and dwelt among his people. Jesus wasn't just special. Don't don't cheat God by thinking about him in small, pathetic ways. Matthew 1, 21 through 23. The angel gives this to Joseph, he says. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. God is still imminent even today. Just because he's not walking around here on earth with us. He has given us his Holy Spirit which dwells in us if we are in Christ. God is as present now. Church, God is as present now in us if we are in Christ as he was when he walked on this earth. There's a lot else we could talk about here, but let's, let's move to our final thought and then to the Lord's table this morning. Really, the second half of Zechariah's prophecy is the preparation of God's people. They, they needed to be prepared. They needed to be prepared for the... Because there was that 400-year period of silence where they didn't perceive God doing anything amongst them, they needed to be prepared. Zechariah's song was public. We mentioned that earlier, right? That, that was one of the contrasts, that this was public while Mary's song was private. But Zechariah's prophecy comes in public. It was given to the people to begin to understand that God again was at work amongst them. For the first time in 400 years, they could see and begin to understand that God was doing something amongst his people. Look at verses 76 through 79, just the second half of Zechariah's prophecy, and you, child, he's speaking about John the Baptist, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way to give knowledge of salvation to his people for the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the, sun sh- the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. John, Zechariah's son John, would be the greatest man in human history up until that point. Matthew 11, 11, Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, among those who, who are born among women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Those who experience redemption that Zechariah sings about are even greater. Why was John great? He tells the world, he prepares the world for the coming king. Why are those who are now redeemed and part of the kingdom of heaven greater? Because we, as those people, tell the world that the king has come. And God's people needed preparing. Again, a dark, cold place. We see this in verses 78 and 79. Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. 
they found themselves in this dark, cold place. And John's message of the coming king opened up the doors to welcome in the light. The Gospel of John, John, the beloved disciple, not John the Baptist, but John, the beloved disciple, writes this at the beginning of his Gospel. Chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. This is about John the Baptist from John, the beloved disciple. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Kind of like a movie trailer. John is kind of, think of John like a, John the Baptist is like a movie trailer. He shows up to, to give everybody an indication about what's coming. What's coming? Here comes the main event. Get prepared for it. So as we move then to the Lord's table, this is important. Let's consider John's task as outlined by Zechariah. Think about God's purposes for us as a people. As a church, as Buffalo City Church, what does it mean that God has purposes for us? When Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six about the Lord's Supper, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until you come. This is not a point that should fly over our heads, but every time we see that word you, it's plural. Every time we see that word, it means all of you, not just singular you. So we as small little agents in this room are not individually proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, but we are corporately proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. That is part of our purpose as the local church is to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, and we do that together as the body of Christ. Not given to individuals, given to the local church. John prepared a people. John prepared a people to be redeemed. And we together this morning, if you're in Christ, are part of the redeemed. John proclaimed the coming of the king. We together proclaim that the king has come and that he's coming again. Friends, Christmas is good news. Christmas is good news. God took on flesh. He became imminent. He became near. He visited his people. And he visited them, not just to get the picture of what's going on, but to redeem them. He came to save them from their sins. And we walk in that truth as much on December 25th as we do any other day throughout the course of the rest of the year. As much on December 25th as we do in June. Christ came near. The perfect sacrifice. Broken body. Shed blood. To bring us back to God.